Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you, you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the, men, the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the, military, with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, 
for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I know we're missing a few folks this morning, but praise God you're here. And we have our word open before us here this morning. And I'm excited about what the Lord has to share uh, with us from Acts 25. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses this morning, primarily. So um, before we jump in, uh, let's ask the Lord and his blessing upon his word. And uh, we'll go from there. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are gathered here at this time to open your word and to learn from you. We thank you, Father, that your word has power to change our lives. And pray that as we look to your word today, we would remember the life-changing, transformative work that only you can bring about. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear and that you would, uh, for some at least, perhaps move our, our hands to take notes as you see fit. But Lord, most of all, we pray that we'd be able to take what we hear and translate that into doing. I pray that we would exercise works and faith together that we would shine the light of Christ as you've called us. Father, we ask that you would teach us what it is to influence others for Jesus. We submit ourselves before you and ask that you would work in us, that we might carry out your will and reach others with the gospel truth for your glory, for your honor, for your name's sake. And we thank you, Lord, this morning for the privilege of be called a child of yours. And Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As a precursor this morning to the text, I'd like you to consider the following names. Consider what each one of these folks have in common. It's quite an interesting list as you'll come to see. Mother Teresa, Alexander the Great, Bill Gates, Charles Spurgeon, LeBron James, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Barack Obama, Adolf Hitler, now, as I mention those names, perhaps for each one of those names, young people, maybe you didn't recognize all of those names. But I would imagine that as those names sounded forth, certain images, certain thoughts, certain feelings came rushing to the forefront. What does each of these people have in common? I believe all ten of these names I mentioned have influence. Influence. Influence for the good. Influence 
perhaps not so good. Influence, perhaps, even further over here, wicked. This morning, as you sit here in the chair, I'd like you to consider who the influencers, influencers are in your life. Who has influenced you up to this point? In fact, it might be helpful just to think through, and if you do write notes, you can jot down two or three people. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is it here on earth that has influenced you, has changed the way you perhaps do things, changed perhaps the way you've thought about things, and as you write down a name or think about a name, I believe it's also helpful to include how they influenced you. What did these people do that made a lasting impression upon you? And what is it about their life that brought a change of behavior in your own life? I was thinking about influence this week as I was reading the text. I was drawn to things that tend to influence us. There was a story that came out. I'm sure many of you heard the story around the time of the 4th of July. There was a 22-year-old young man in Maine who thought it a good idea at the time to set a firework off from the top of his head. He died instantly. Blew him up. Come to find out in the story that that this young man was under the influence of alcohol. You see, countless lives have been ended by Men and women, if we were to look in these vehicles that we drive, sometimes these folks are pulled over before they can do damage to others. Other times the damage has already been done and they're found to be under the influence of alcohol. In fact, the term is a DUI, a driving under the influence. And translated, we know that the influencing factor is alcohol, which results in a drunken state. The proverb writer has something to say about that. In fact, chapter 20, verse 1, he says, Wine is a a mocker and strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not what? Wise. The last chapter in Proverbs, in verses 4 and 5, it says, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. Why? Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. A king who's filled with wine or intoxicating drink will forget the law he's intended to uphold. It will cause him to pervert justice as well. See, because he won't be in his right mind. 
as we look to the text today, I'd like us to consider influence of a different kind. What is it to live under the influence? More specifically, what is it to live life under the controlled influence of the Holy Spirit? What's that look like? How does that get played out? See, influence can be leveraged for the good or for the bad. That list of names up front is an example of that. We can influence our children toward things of the Lord or things in this world. We can influence coworkers toward slothful work or hard work. We can influence those around us by acting honestly or cheating to get ahead. We can influence those around us simply with our word choices. You know, there seem to be a a certain group of folks who have a very limited vocabulary today. And they use the same words. Some of them very foul words. And it's like that's that's the extent of the vocabulary. But here's what I've come to find out. Because even in what I do as a referee, when you go to a camp, like I've gone to, and there's a bunch of referees... There seems to be this thing of using words, certain words, that evidently attracts these people because everyone, when they get together, they start using the same vocabulary. And oftentimes this vocabulary of which I speak is not very good. And you've probably been in situations yourself with friends acquaintances, maybe at the workplace, where an individual may not use a certain word or words when they're just having a conversation with you. But get them alongside these other people who do use this certain set of words. And isn't it interesting the influence that that group can have upon this other person? You see, our words, with our words we can influence other people, how we speak, how we treat people. It's been said that leadership is influence. Some of you in here perhaps know, especially some of you younger folks may know, a gentleman by the name of Russell Wilson. He's a quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL, a believer. Shared testimony recently, and I heard him speaking as he was asked the question about this past year's Super Bowl. His team was playing in the Super Bowl. And those of you that know the result of that Super Bowl know that Seattle lost in the last seconds. Seattle has the ball. They're on the one-yard line. They're about to score, and they're about to win the Super Bowl. Well, Russell Wilson's describing what happened. He said the play happens, and they... They picked the ball off. He threw a pass, and the other team intercepted. Game's over. Seattle loses. He says, 
after they picked the ball off. He said, I, I, I took three steps toward the sidelines. And on the third step, God says to me, I'm using you. He said, I, I proceeded to take another three steps. And then God said, I want to see how you respond. But most importantly, I want them to see how you respond. And I was thinking about that and I was wondering, have, have we considered that, that God may be doing the very same thing in our own lives? Most of us will probably never be in a position on the one-yard line with seconds remaining with a chance to win the Super Bowl. Some of us don't care to win the Super Bowl. But how often do we find ourselves in a situation that turns south? And we're left with a choice on how to respond to adversity. I think we've all been there, have we not? How do we respond when things go south? They don't turn out the way we had hoped. Is it possible in those moments that God not only wants to see how you respond to the test, but that he's looking for someone, someone to respond favorably, whether you win or lose, whether you get the deal or not, whether results are positive or negative. He's looking for someone to respond favorably in order that others have someone to look at. The Lord brings trials and tests our way, no doubt to shape us, to sanctify us, to help us move a little bit closer to that of his son Jesus. But I believe it's also true that he brings those tests and trials to show to those around us how we respond in adverse situations. He's looking for people whose hearts are set on influencing others in the way of the Lord. Because you see, the reality of our lives is such that things are going to happen contrary to what we would want. How do we live our lives when things don't turn out like we want them to? Do we pout? Do we get bitter? Do we think somebody's just out to get us? Do we play the victim mindset? Do we consider that the way we handle ourselves in those critical moments is going to influence people who are watching? And maybe it's not going to be at the stage of a grand Super Bowl event. Perhaps it's going to be on the stage of your family, your extended family. Whatever the impact, you can be assured that it is going to make a difference one way or the other.
I was reminded of the words of Paul in Corinthians chapter 11. It's not the only time in the Bible he mentions this, but he says at the beginning of chapter 11, he says to the church at Corinth, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now some take that as Paul is boasting. (laughs) I don't see it as Paul boasting one bit. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. You know, there was a song that was put out years ago. And and the chorus said, Lord, I want to be just like you. Because he's talking about his son. Moms, you can apply this to the daughters. Because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. See, as you scan the history of Paul's post-conversion life, and we know that in the scripture to be Acts 9, right? His post-conversion life you're going to notice many occasions where he influenced others for the Lord Jesus Christ as perhaps the greatest missionary of all time. I think a very strong case could be made for that. Paul's life influenced the entire Mediterranean world of his day for the cause of Christ. Wherever he went... He was bringing to that place the influence of Jesus. Think about it. Wherever you go, some of you travel a lot more than others. Are you taking with you the influence of Jesus Christ? To the bank, to the store, to the friend's house. Fill in the blank, wherever you go. We have opportunity to take the influence, the same influence, to do exactly what Paul did. He influenced the world, the Mediterranean world, with Christ. Wherever he went. And you know, since Acts 21, Paul has been a prisoner. And even as the book of Acts closes in chapter 28, Paul is still deemed a prisoner in house arrest. And yet Paul doesn't allow his circumstances to dampen his joy in Christ. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't turn off his Christianity while chained as a prisoner. How many times have you allowed your station in life your situation that you find yourself in, how many times have you allowed that circumstance to determine your influencing effect on others? Have you considered that your influence extends beyond a leadership position? Have you ever thought about your influence from the bottom up? It comes as no surprise to us that Jesus is oftentimes referred to as a servant leader. Jesus didn't come as this 
ruling monarch, this, this dictator. He came as a lowly infant. And even his approach to life as he grew was such that people still didn't understand, still didn't believe, they didn't receive him as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet isn't it interesting that here we are today, July 12th, 2015, some 2,000 years removed from Christ. And yet there is no other man, no other person who has had the influence of a greater degree, greater magnitude than Jesus. No one. And there are many who look to Jesus as their source of influence in a good way. And yet there are also many people, are there not, who see this man, Jesus, really in a similar picture of what we're reading in Acts 25. The influence of Jesus is not a good thing. This man, early on in Acts, remember, hey, they're teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop it. That was the message they were told. We can't help preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus We were eyewitnesses. We saw this. We must continue this. Praise God that they did. We are some 240 years, give or take, removed from the beginnings of our nation. And isn't it interesting, the Christian influence over that time span. What at one time was a very large Christian influence seems to have over the years dwindled, faded, been obscured. Largely from those who, yes, are in positions of authority. The question I would like to ask this morning as we look at the text is just because there are positions of authority that seem to be influenced in a different direction, influenced perhaps away from the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, it does not keep any one of us from being influenced by Jesus and to be an influencer for the cause of Jesus Christ. You do not have to be the president of the United States. You do not have to be a senator. You don't have to be a governor. But you can be a dad. You can be a mom. You can be a son. You can be a daughter in your home. And you can have great influence with others for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen? We can do that. We can do that. I want to encourage you in that. As you read the text today, chart the course of Festus, the high priest, these chief men of the Jews, chart the the course of Paul, engage which ones are exerting the greatest influence. 
track which ones are influencing for the good. Because remember, influence can go both ways. Who's being influenced in the text? We need to remember that influence is not some vague concept or theory. But, but a catalyst for change. What might happen in these perilous days if the church set about living under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Is God still able to change things through surrendered, submitted, and available vessels living out an obedient, faith-filled life? Do you believe that he's able? I believe he is. He doesn't need someone in a high position of authority in the world's eyes to make that happen. In fact, oftentimes that's not his way. He chooses the lowly. He chooses the weak. That's what Corinthians chapter 1 says. The beginning of that familiar chapter in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. And then he says, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. God plants and plucks what is planted. In Acts 25, Festus is planted as the next governor over Judea. Felix has been plucked by God. Okay? He's been removed from office. And as you end Acts 24, begin Acts 25, you notice a changing of the guard. Felix is out. Festus is in. With a changing in office, there's oftentimes a change in how things get done. Right? The new guy coming in may influence people in a different direction than his predecessor. And I was thinking about this and was simply drawn to the Bible to come up with examples of that very point. And you think about King Hezekiah, how he influenced his people differently than did his son Manasseh. You think about King Ammon, who influenced the people of Judah in a different direction than his son Josiah. You think about Jehoshaphat and how he influenced people down a different path than his son Jehoram. We could make quite a list. The influence of Felix as an able leader and judge is put in question in terms of how he handles the case of Paul. For two years, Paul remained a prisoner. In Acts 24, if you look at the last verse in Acts 24... It says, after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. He wanted to do the Jews a favor, and so he leaves Paul bound. He's placed in a leadership position and yet refuses to lead well. He is the one being influenced, it seems, since he wants to do the Jews a favor. Festus is appointed now as the governor over Judea. He's the new leader. He's commissioned to help keep the peace in Judea. And the text says that after three days, 
settling in at Caesarea, Festus travels the two-day trip to Jerusalem. Now, the text here in chapter 25 is really built around geographical boundaries. We're going to see early on in verse 1, he is in Caesarea. He's going to be making a trip after three days and he's going to go to Caesarea. And he's going to be in Caesarea. Excuse me. He's in Caesarea and he's going to Jerusalem. I got it backwards. And in Jerusalem, he's going to be there for 10 days. And then he's going to be going back to Caesarea. And if the Jewish leaders were able to get their way, he would have gone back to Jerusalem again. But we're going to see that these geographic boundaries actually represent something. It's a, it's a shift in influence. So in Caesarea, we see primarily a Roman influence. In Jerusalem, we see a Jewish influence. And so back and forth, we go in the text on the influence. This comes into play, especially at the end of our text today, because there's a push to go back to Jerusalem to redo this trial again. Well, there's certain influence in Jerusalem that perhaps is not there in Caesarea. Much to the liking of the Jewish leaders. So these geographical boundaries are very important. Jerusalem, home of the Jews. Sanhedrin holds great influence in the holy city. Caesarea, the Roman governor. At this time, Portius Festus. We're looking on the timeline of around 60 to 62. Festus ruled and reigned for about two years. And he holds the majority influence there. And so when you, when you think about those geographic influences, and then you enter into the mix, what you already know of Paul's situation. He's been seized, remember, a few chapters ago by the Jews from Asia who came and saw him in the temple. He's been held as a prisoner under Felix for some two years now. And the Jews are hungry to see Paul dead. And they're doing their best to influence Roman leadership for a death sentence that they might once for all rid themselves of Paul's voice. You know, I think this text also opens for us just as a side note of application and understanding. The, the pull and the snare of sin. Think about it. For two years, these Jewish folks have been holding on to this about Paul. I find it interesting that as he goes to Jerusalem, one of the first groups of people he encounters, the, the chief you know, priests, high priests, and some of the chief men of the city. And what's one of the first things we got recorded for us? They're all up in arms about this guy, Paul. And you know, that's, a, that's what sin does. If we don't deal with sin in our lives, it can just take root. For a long time. And it seems as though they hadn't dealt with this sin. They still, it's still bubbling. They still have this hatred toward Paul and his message. So much so they're trying to exert their influence now on this new guy. Who's leading. 
Well, while in Caesarea, those first three days, Festus is cleaning his office. I'm imagining all these things that he's doing. Think about it. You're a new, new person coming in, new title. You got your office. Sometimes the office gets cleaned out before you arrive. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have to do your own cleaning. I imagine that Festus had certain files that were kept behind for his review. Certain things that he had to take note of as he begins his new time in office. He's putting things in order in these first few days. And if Paul's case is any indicator of Felix's competent leadership, I'm sure Festus had his work cut out for him as he begins his term as governor. After three days, Festus travels to Jerusalem. Question from the text. Why would the new governor, why would he travel to Jerusalem? It's important to ask that question. Why would he go there? As a new leader of the region, Festus is concerned with getting to know his constituents. Okay? Making his acquaintance among the Jewish leaders. He's concerned with seeing perhaps the layout of the city. He's probably interested in checking out the Roman garrison there in Jerusalem by the temple. Introducing himself to the commander, the centurion serving under him. I imagine that some kind of inspection was made. And Festus is making his rounds in the holy city to do what I would just call today's terms a meet and greet. Meeting and greeting the people that he feels he needs to connect with. Notice how the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem welcome Festus. Picking it up in verse 2. And the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem. And then right here, Luke inserts additional information for us. While they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. A new leader comes to town. And oftentimes the new leader wants to hear what's on the minds of the people. Even in the year before the election, right? We're already hearing reports of these candidates. What are they doing? They're making their rounds... To different cities, promoting themselves at some level, but also trying to hear what concerns may be in these different states, in these different regions, in these different towns. The leaders in Jerusalem seem loaded to share all about Paul and his illegal activities. They go about campaigning for a favor against Paul, they keep on begging. That's the idea there when it says they petitioned him. They keep on begging. They keep on urging him to summon Paul to Jerusalem. And that word summon is an interesting word itself. It has in mind to to send for one's own benefit. To send for one's own benefit. So the benefit that they have in mind is killing him. Send him for our benefit. Now we know in our own minds 
We don't plan for him to even get to Jerusalem because we're going to take him out before he gets there. See, they had hopes of ridding themselves of Paul's voice altogether. And you know, 40 men made the oath over two years ago. You remember that? They were going to kill Paul. They had the audacity to go to the chief priests at the time to tell them the plan. Hey, help us out. Do us a favor. It seems here in the text in chapter 25, their influence has continued to infect Jewish leadership over these past two years. And on this particular occasion, praise God, verse 4, Festus is not influenced by their begging. It says, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. The rendering of that particular part of the verse, that clause, that if there, uh, the way that's written, leads us to believe that Festus isn't really sure that Paul's done anything. Festus seems to have somewhat of a clear mind about whether Paul's guilty or not. But he's, he's encouraging the Jewish leaders to do the right thing, is he not? Hey, Paul's in Caesarea. I'm going back to Caesarea. If you have charges against this man, you can come down with me. And we'll do this the right way in a court of law. Seems to be at this point. Some good things from Festus. He's not being influenced, at least right here, yet. We see that even though Festus is the new guy, he doesn't cave into the voices in Jerusalem on this occasion. Instead, he points them to take their concerns to Caesarea. He doesn't, notice, he doesn't discount their concerns, but makes clear where their concerns are to be heard in Caesarea. Okay? After a 10-day trip in Jerusalem, Festus then returns to his headquarters in Caesarea. And business item number one, it seems, on the agenda is hearing Paul's case. The Jews from Jerusalem follow him. And Paul is commanded to be brought before them. Festus himself sits on the judgment seat, verse 6. So three days in Caesarea, home Roman influence. Ten days in Jerusalem, home of Jewish influence. Now he's headed back to Caesarea where Paul remains as prisoner. Look at verses 7 and 8. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul. I love this next comment by Luke. Which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, Paul did, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Now, think about this trial. We're two years removed from the original trial. Okay? And the Jewish leaders back then, two years ago, didn't even have those guys from Asia. They were the ones originally who seized Paul in the temple. Remember that? So now we're two years removed from that. And now they're going to trial. And the Jewish leaders didn't have any eyewitnesses with them. 
It seems that they merely recounted the charges against Paul, and then Paul refutes each one of them. I, I tend to believe this wasn't a very long trial, because I don't think the Jewish leaders had much to put forth. I don't think they had a whole lot of evidence. And Paul simply point by point with what they charged. Some say, I didn't do this. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. Didn't do this. Festus now is charged with discerning the facts of the case. You know, I was thinking about this in Festus's position. New leader. You know, when you, when you jump into a new job, a new position... Everything out, out of the gate is usually exciting. It's, it's somewhat thrilling. It's an adventure, maybe. You, you like the idea of it. And then, and then it comes. That moment when you are on to make a decision. You are now the person charged with the responsibility to make a decision. And perhaps it's not as fun as what originally you thought it might be. Festus now is put in a position. He's heard both the Jewish leaders' complaints. He's heard Paul and his defense. What's Festus going to do? On one end, it's same same dilemma Felix dealt with, wasn't it? Set Paul free or charge him, sentence him to death. What was it going to be? Acts 25, I believe, verse 9, is a telling verse in this passage. It it speaks to the character of Festus. It points backward to the influence of Felix. Remember, chapter 24, verse 27. Almost have verbatim the same thing. He's wanting to do the Jews a favor. In terms of influence, it seems the Jewish leaders have more sway than Paul. (laughs) And Festus is no doubt more concerned with pleasing his constituents over and above his prisoners. Right? I mean, if if we're really taking a step back and assessing the situation, that's what's happening. Prisoners oftentimes don't get preferential treatment. Both Felix and Festus hear the testimonies of both parties and they choose to be influenced by the Jewish people. And as we spoke last week, there's a fear of the people operating in both Felix and Festus. Whereas early on back in Jerusalem, you held out some hope that that Festus might actually be influenced to do the things the right way. You see right here that when confronted with a decision, he opts to judge partially and to do the Jews a favor. He's being influenced. He asked Paul the question, are you willing, Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? It's hard to know, church, the logic behind such a question. 
why the need to go through the proceedings a third time? Does Festus really believe that he'll arrive at additional details to help him judge the case? Whether there is any pure motive in Festus's question, Paul sees a trip to Jerusalem as a death sentence. And he speaks up. He's asked a question and he speaks. Verses 10 and 11. Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now I want you to look at what he's saying here. First thing, he says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. Caesarea, remember, is the Roman headquarters overseeing this particular region of Judea. And Paul is saying, Caesarea is an extension of Caesar's judgment seat. There's no need to go to Jerusalem. This is the place where I ought to be judged. And it's interesting that through the course of these trials, the Jewish leaders understanding history, understand it's sort of like today and you know, well, at least it's supposed to be like today in terms of understanding previous court cases and how court cases were handled. But no doubt we can look at and we can be reminded of the time when Jesus was crucified and he was being put forth as a disruptor of the, of the nation. Blasphemy was one of the charges put forth. But no doubt there was this emphasis put forth by the Jewish leaders of the day that Jesus was causing a disturbance. And that therefore something needed to happen to this man because all he's going to do is cause a disturbance in the land. You see, the Jewish leaders were very intelligent in understanding that because they knew that their chances of getting a charge against Jesus was going to be raised significantly if they pointed out some political charges against him versus religious charges because the Romans were like hey it has to do with their law you know many of them had no idea when it came to their laws and so while the Jews understood that Jesus maybe did some things against their own laws one of the things that they were upholding against Jesus was primarily him being a disturber of the peace and they're doing the same thing here with Paul Yes, they're pointing out that he was going against the temple and going against the law, but they're also really strongly putting forth Paul is also disturbing the whole world, they said on one occasion. Knowing that the Roman leaders didn't like there to be chaos and unrest. So it's put forward. Paul's saying, I stand, I'm, I'm here where I'm supposed to be and this is where I ought to be tried. 
He says, to the Jews, I've done nothing wrong, as you very well know. He says, Here, here's another reason why it's not necessary to return to Jerusalem. I'm innocent of the charges that the Jews have put before me. And Festus, you know very well that I'm innocent. I, I just picture Paul looking right at him. You know. He says, Festus, I have no fear of dying. Festus, if, if I'm guilty, I, I, love, I love the transparency of Paul. If I'm guilty, sentence me to die. I have nothing, I'm, I'm not objecting dying. If I've done something worth death, so be it. However, if not, there's no reason for me to go to Jerusalem, Festus. And hand me over to a group of people who ultimately simply just want to kill me. His appeal to Caesar comes since it looks as though, Festus, you aren't going to make a decision on this case. And I'm sure Paul's thinking just like Felix did. (laughs) Just like Felix. Since you aren't going to decide one way or the other. I'm appealing to this case to Caesar. Remember, it's right here where I was reminded, if you flip backwards in Acts to chapter 23 for just a moment, in verse 11. Remember, this, is, this comes at a low point in Paul's life. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Hmm. And remember, we talked about at the time, Paul doesn't know how all that's going to happen. He has no idea how it's all going to happen, how it's all going to come together. And now here we are, fast forward a couple chapters, a couple trials later, he's appealing to Caesar. Now's the opportunity to go to Rome. You know, when I, I was thinking about how Paul, in appealing to Caesar, Paul had to have been in tune with the Lord through this one. You see, I'm convinced there are times and occasions in our lives when the Lord has called us and pressed upon us to go somewhere, to be with someone, to speak a word to someone, and we, like Paul, might not know how it's all going to happen. And yet when we find ourselves in situations... Similar to this. Trying to figure out the pieces. I believe the Lord's desire is to use us in our situation wherever we may be. I believe the Lord's desire is that we would be so in tune, so in touch with the Lord and walking in the Holy Spirit that we would be able to do exactly what Paul does right here. And that is discern the time to speak. I mean, if Paul hadn't spoken here, I mean, we don't know. We can play the what if game. Sometimes we do that, don't we? Well, if I would have done this, or if somebody, or you look in history, and if, if so-and-so in history hadn't made this decision in this moment, what might have happened? Well, Paul, praise God, he makes the decision. He appeals. And in verse 12, we see his response. 
Festus, when he had conferred with the council, he had some legal counsel. And he, he was in dialogue. We don't know how long that took. It may have been over the course of a day or two. But he comes back and he says, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, Paul is aware of the situation before him, and he's, he's heard from the Lord on, on how he must testify in Rome, chapter 23, verse 11. But up to this point, he, he hasn't really figured out how he's going to arrive there, being a prisoner and all. A fair trial in Jerusalem seems out of the case. And now two times around with Roman governors in Caesarea, Paul's figuring out that his influence pales in comparison to the angry Jewish constituents. And it's at this point where you might be inclined to wonder how an appeal to the high court in Rome is going to fare any better. Who's the emperor in Rome right now? A guy named Nero. He he ruled and reigned from about 54 to 68. So this is on the early end of his reign, which is a praise because the earlier end of his reign was actually halfway decent. Near the end, it was not so decent at all. It was pretty bad, toward Christians in particular. But he's going from Festus to Nero. On the surface, his situation doesn't seem like it might get any better. But nevertheless, that's his, that's his situation. As you look at the text, I believe that you see the strong influence being exerted by the Jewish people. You see a governor who's most concerned with doing the Jews a favor than in ruling justly. And you see Paul exerting what influence he has as a prisoner upon Festus. He speaks quite compellingly, I believe, making a logical case for why he ought not go to Jerusalem. He indirectly rebukes Festus, I believe, wanting him to see that right here in Caesarea, Festus is the place where I'm to be judged. Hint, hint, Festus, make a decision. He openly places his life in his hands, declaring that if he's done anything deserving of death, then so be it. And so then, having consulted his legal advisors, Festus grants Paul a trip to Rome. And for Festus, think about it from his perspective. This would have been a huge load off of his back. He doesn't have to deal with this anymore. The Jewish people would need now to take their complaints to the emperor in Rome. He's the one that's got this one. And Festus doesn't have to make a decision on Paul. Isn't that interesting how both he and Felix got away with this? They did it a little bit differently. But both of them essentially opted not to make a decision this way or this way. They just chose to deal with it another way. Festus doesn't have to make a decision on Paul now. Whether to release him or charge him is guilty. He can simply sweep his slate clean of this man Paul. And he can move on to other things now that need his attention. You know we live in a world 
filled with competing influences. Don't we? We usually refer to this competitive influence as marketing. And businesses and organizations are, are vying for your time and vying for your attention and your dollars. As a follower of Jesus Christ living in this world, we share a common bond with the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about the intense hatred for Paul and his message that hasn't gotten any better over these 2,000 years. We live in the midst of a world that is influenced under the sway of the devil. That's what we find out in 1 John chapter 5. We are operating in enemy territory for a time. And yet the task for each one of us in Christ is to be a witness to Jesus. Think about it. We are to be a witness to Jesus in the midst of hostile territory. Now, if we were to draw it up, I think we probably would like to be a witness to Jesus in the midst of a culture and a world that loved Jesus. Oh, it'd be so much easier, you might be thinking to yourself. Oh, it'd be be great. People welcomed what we had to say. Church, we need to go back and read the Gospels and we need to look once again at how people treated Jesus. Remember John 15? Jesus told the disciples before he went to the cross, he said, hey, look, guys. The world hates me. The world's going to hate you and those who follow in my way. You think they hated my message? They're going to hate your message too. We live in enemy territory. The good news is it's but for a time. That's the good news. We think about where Paul was at as a prisoner. And we think about ourselves here. And we think that even ourselves, we are prisoners in some regard, much like Paul. And yet the Bible says that that we are free in Christ. We're free. The chains have been broken in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, Paul says in Romans. We have now been freed to live and to walk by faith. To walk, to keep in step with the Spirit, as the Bible says. We are free in Christ. You know, I was thinking about it in, in, just in, in the realm of, uh, oftentimes as I'm refereeing, I'm thinking about um, even as the, as the ball is tipped, you know, usually there's the white and usually there's the dark colored jerseys. So you have the home team and you have the visiting team. And, and I was thinking about that just in terms of this text and what we're talking about here, that in Christ, we are the visitors here in this world. We're the visitors. We're the pilgrims, the sojourners, Peter writes. And this world is passing away in the lust thereof. That's what 1 John chapter 2 says. One of the challenges set before the church today is learning how to influence others even in the midst of playing on the visitor's court. How do we do that, church? How do we influence As a guest here, those in the world, and influence those in the world around us with the truth 
of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the fans can get raucous. Oftentimes they don't take a liking to the visitors that come. And yet the influence of Christ ought not be repulsive and unattractive. It may be offensive because it's the truth. And the world will continue to be repulsed by the truth. But our resolve to influence the world with Christ, to serve as a witness, as an ambassador, as a beacon of light, as a vessel of love. All of these things needed that we might be well-pleasing to God, as we talked about last week. And that we might win some for the Lord during our brief stay. I mean, wasn't that what Paul was about when he was speaking in Corinthians? To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those who are outside. Paul was about something bigger than himself. Paul was about something bigger than simply dying. He's like in Philippians 1.21. Hey, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is it gain for Paul? Because he gets to be with Jesus. Paul was a heavenly man. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You can't kill a heavenly man. He was so consumed and absorbed with Christ and things of Christ. That's the way he spent his days. I was reminded of the first question. Perhaps to many of you a familiar question. What is the chief end of man? Anybody know the answer to the question? What is the chief end of man? Anybody know it? If you know it, go ahead and tell me. It's okay. Excellent. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I didn't plant that answer with my wife either. She just came up with it. Do our lives influence others in that direction, church? Even as one without a great deal of leadership authority, you can influence a great deal of people as the Holy Spirit works in you. Listen, your greatest influence is going to be Christ in you. That, that's your greatest influence. Christ in you. And know that you are forfeiting your greatest influence if you have yet to be influenced by the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. Jesus came as a lowly infant. He left the world in a borrowed grave. And yet his influence has lasted to this day. And it's not going anywhere. His influence is granted to you and to me. It's, It's granted to us everlasting life. You know, there are many people today who are looking... Searching, endeavoring to consider what it is to live a life of influence. And that list of names I I put up there at the beginning, many of those folks. Pursuing a path to see how they might be able to leverage others 
and influence others in this way. And while many of those names I mentioned early on did in fact influence quite a large number of people. And some of those names are still around today and they still are influencing a large number of people today. Know that there are no names on that list on the same page with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. None of them combined have had the impact and the influence of Jesus Christ. The greatest influence you can have on another is the influence of Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, your influence is always going to be hollow. Oh, it may produce a following, but it's always going to be hollow. It's always going to be temporal. It's not going to last. With Jesus, you always have something to offer that will span not just a lifetime, but an eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word here in Acts 25. I thank you for your servant, Paul, who once again gives us example of how to lead, how to influence others, even from the position of a a prisoner. Father, while many of us here can't relate to actually being locked up in a prison, majority of us here can relate to being in a position of trying to influence from the bottom up. Lord, that's, I read this text and I see that, Lord, uh, very clearly that, that Paul is in no position to call the shots. And Father, oftentimes in our own lives, we're not either. And yet, Father, you've given to us this trust, this stewardship. You've given to us, Lord, your Holy Spirit to abide within us. And Father, I'm grateful that the Spirit in us is greater than the one who is in the world. You have granted to us everything we need for godliness in this life. And Father, you have influenced us in such a great way. You have shaped us. You have molded us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, the fact that time itself is separated by this man, Jesus Christ. We talk about before Christ on the timeline. No one else, no one else had such an influence on all of history. And Father, I pray that that we would be consumed with this one who spent his days lowly, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, and yet the Savior of the world. And Father, he's still the Savior of the world today. He's still influencing lives today. And Father, you've called us as your ambassadors to be the ones now 
to be people of influence. To see that your word continues to go forward. I praise you, Father, for those apostles long ago. who They, they were following you. They were your eyewitnesses. And, and they were the ones who, who shot out the message. Father, now you've called us. And you continue to call us. May we be found faithful as an influencer of the truth of Jesus Christ. And for those here this morning, Father, who have yet to be influenced by this man, Jesus, I pray, Father, for them. And I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to be able to see, open their ears, that they might hear your gospel truth, that they might come to know this one named Jesus, the one who will change their lives forever. Not just here, but for all eternity. Father, we are grateful that you've called us unto yourself. And we thank you most of all this morning for Jesus. May his influence in our lives be reflected in how we manifest our living here today. May we truly be people who live under the influence, the controlled influence of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would bring about the results and the outcomes of your desires. Thank you for using us. Thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Remind us that we're guests here. Remind us that things aren't always going to go our way here. But I pray that we would remain steadfast and firm, walking on the truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.